Wow, welcome, welcome everybody. So glad to have you here with us today. My name is Josh Falk, for those of you who don't know me, and I'm one of the pastors here on staff. And um, one of the things I get to do uh, in the role that I'm in is I get to work with our awesome college ministry. And um, we have a, a ministry called Fairfax College. It's for college students, but also young adults who are college age-ish. You know, if you've been there, you get it, okay? Um, and so I'm just gonna a shout out real quick. If you're a college student, we'd love to, to meet you and connect with you. And we also are looking for some families in the church who might be interested in hosting one of our college small groups. Uh, you gotta live kind of close to the church uh, and all that stuff. And our college group they, leaders, they College students lead themselves and, and they disciple one another, but they don't have like homes usually where like they can like invite people into, right? And so um, if you're interested in that, let me know. Come find me after church, go online, fill out a form. You can find me. Okay, cool, thank you. <laughs> um, so we are in this series. Um, it's a seven week series and it's called Restoring Broken Signposts. We're in week four. And it's, um, it's inspired by a book that's written by N.T. Wright, who's a theologian and author. And the book is called Broken Signposts. And so in this book, Wright, he uses the um, you know, Gospel of John, he uses it as a lens and as a framework to view these seven things that we often look to as humans to make sense of the world. Okay, so they're justice, love, and spirituality. We looked at those three things these last three weeks. And then beauty, freedom, truth, and power. And these seven signposts, we often look to these to help us make sense of the human experience. You know, like a sign, a sign is pointing to something that's greater than itself, right? Like a sign isn't a destination. A sign is trying to point you to the deeper, you know, significant destination, and so we look to these seven things as like a sign of like some kind of deeper meaning to our human experience. And so we hope that as we get closer to them, as we you know, pursue justice, as we pursue beauty and pursue love and all the rest, that we hope that as we get close to them, that they will help bring into focus you know, what life is all about. And so we look to these signposts you know, with hope, yet... As we get closer, we kind of, we, we start to realize that they're not how they ought to be. We see the brokenness in each of them. We, we, we have a deep sense that there's something that's just not quite right, that there could be, that there should be more. And in this series, we're looking at each of these seven signposts, you know, one each week, and we're looking at them through the lens of the gospel. And, and as we look at each one, we see the restorative work of God and what he's done and what he is doing and what he will do to restore each of them. And we are invited to partner with him in being a part of his restorative work in these seven things. And so today we're looking at beauty, okay? And the first thing that we're gonna do is you're like, what do you mean by beauty? Okay, so I want you to think of a time when you saw or heard or experienced something that was truly beautiful. Something that leaves you in awe and wonder. Something that takes your breath away and causes you to pause and reflect. Like, like a work of art, right? A work of art, a painting, 
a sculpture, some kind of architecture. And man, are there some really cool architectures, both in, both in history and in modern day, right? These works of art and architecture. Uh, what about a concert of your favorite singer, Taylor Swift, you know? Um, you're like, man, that, that is beautiful, like how she can sing, right? Um, a masterful musician where like the music, the instrument is like an extension of themselves, right? And they can just play this instrument so beautifully. Um, about a movie or a play that like just takes your breath away. What about in nature, just a sunset? A sunset can be so breathtaking. Or standing at the overlook of a mountain and looking out, you know, across a valley and across mountains, you just see the beauty and the wonder. Um, you look at a starry night in the midnight sky, like when you're not here in the city. You know, if you've ever done that, it's absolutely breathtaking. And a starfish, like what's up with that, right? Like I've seen SpongeBob, but like, where is the mouth and you know, how does it all work? If you actually pause and think about it, right? Like a starfish, wow. Like, that is wondrous. Like, how does that work, you know? Um, a few more, okay? Game-winning touchdown in the playoffs, right? The Vikings, you know, the whole thing that happened with the Diggs thing, right? It's like, it's like the game is tied and, and all the odds look stacked against you. And, and here comes in the last second, like this throw, the possible catch, and they win the game, right? And you're just like, whoa. Like, that is amazing. Um, enjoying a good meal, holding a newborn baby, a loved one's smile, a beautifully designed spreadsheet. Who's, who's with me, huh? Okay. Some programming code, you know? Like, come on, okay? Depending on who you are, you'd be like, that's beautiful. Okay. Um, you know, and, and being surrounded by, like, just friends or family whom you just love and you know love you and like you just have that moment where you pause. You're like, this is truly beautiful. And so in these moments, it can feel like this transcendent experience, this beauty that takes our breath away. Words can't do it justice, right? We say that all the time, like, I can't describe it. I can't describe it. And though what is beautiful might vary from person to person, culture to culture. The universal truth is that there is something inside us as human beings that is hardwired for beauty. We long to experience something truly beautiful. The struggle, the struggle that we have with beauty though, is those experiences don't last. The tension that we can feel is that it's over too soon. We long to experience it again. And every time we do, there's some part of us that hopes that this time it will last and not end. And so, but eventually, the beautiful experience becomes a memory. The sun does eventually set. The beautiful flower does eventually lose its petals. And the beauty of life eventually ends in death. The beauty of life fades and often that leaves us in mourning, in grieving. We look back on the past, longing to experience the beautiful moments again. Or we look forward to the beauty that we hope to experience, some beautiful moments that, hope, that we hope to experience, right? 
It's in those low moments of grief that we wrestle with the beauty and the brokenness of life. So we have this struggle and this tension with beauty and something in us longs for more. Something in us says that this is not how it ought to be. It leaves us asking questions. It, it leaves us asking, does God care about beauty? And today we are going to look at the story of Jesus. We're going to look specifically at John chapter 11 and see what happens. So I'm going to summarize some of the beginning parts of this story, okay? It's an amazing story, but, you know, um, there's a time limit here, right? So I'm going to summarize uh, the first little bit, and then we're going to start reading, like, in verse 32, okay? So just follow with me, okay? So John, we have, we have John who's written this gospel. It's from his account, his perspective. He's been there. He was with all, he was do, here during all these events. And so we have chapter 11 and we have Jesus and his disciples. They're like a day's walk from Jerusalem, okay? They're over by the Jordan River. And Jesus and his disciples, they get word from a messenger that Jesus's dear friend Lazarus is very sick. And probably he is, he is already passed away because the messenger back then, it takes a long time to get word across, right? And so Jesus' and disciples, they don't immediately go, but eventually they do. And we hear, we see in verse 7, Jesus says, let's go to Judea, which is the region where uh, the little town of Bethany is that has his friend Lazarus who is sick and is probably dead. And so Jesus says, let's go to Judea. And, you know, the disciples are, are freaking out, not because they don't like uh, Lazarus, but because the last time they were in that region, Jesus, like, almost got stoned and got killed. And so the disciples are like, is this the best idea? I'm not sure about this. You know, um, and Jesus is like, yep, we're going to go. And um, Lazarus is only sleeping. Uh, he's dead, but we're going to wake him up. Like, Jesus straight up says this, and the disciples are like, okay. And then in verse 16, okay, word for word, Thomas, our man, he's, a, he's one of the disciples. You know, Jesus is going, they try to stop him, he's still going. And so Thomas says, let us also go that we may die with him. And so the, this kind of sums up this first scene of this story very well because, um, you know, Jesus is wanted and he's going to this area where um, the Jewish leaders want him dead and Lazarus is already dead. So Thomas is like, Lazarus is dead and Jesus is going to die. So guys, you know, John, everybody, let's go. We're going to die with him. Okay. So that's where we are. Now, um, Jesus is in his disciples. Fast forward a little bit. They are on the way to the town of Bethany to see their friend Lazarus, who is most likely dead. And they find out that he's been dead for a few days when they arrive. They miss the funeral. He's already been buried in the tomb. And out comes Martha. Martha and Mary are the sisters of Lazarus. They're the ones that sent the messenger. Martha meets Jesus on the edge of town and she is overwhelmed with grief. And Jesus tries to reassure her and, and say like, hey, like your brother will rise again. But she does not fully understand what Jesus is talking about. 
And then we have Martha goes to get her sister Mary, and that's where we pick up in verse 32. So you can just imagine that, you know, Jesus arrives on the scene here, and Mary and Martha, the sisters of Lazarus, who has now passed away, we see that, Mar- that Mary says this in verse 32. When Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And so you can just feel and see the heavy, the grief, the frustration, the emotion that is here. And then John gives us like this moment by moment, slow-mo, kind of what Jesus does here in response. In verse 33, John says, When Jesus saw her weeping, and he saw the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and trouble. And Jesus says, Where have you laid him? He asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. And then in verse 35, John tells us that Jesus wept that Jesus cried and wept with Mary and the gathered friends. And then the Jews said, see how he, see how Jesus loved him. I'm gonna pause right here and point out one thing that's very important that we learn about beauty in this passage. We learn that God deeply cares about beauty. You can imagine the the grief and despair that's in this scene, the frustration of, of, of Jesus that, man, if you had only been here sooner. But Jesus knows that's not how the story ends. He says over and over again, leading up to, to this moment, that Lazarus will rise from the dead. We are reminded here that God deeply cares about beauty that God willingly enters into the ugliness of our world and our lives. In this moment, we see divine empathy in Jesus. That Jesus, knowing what's gonna happen, he knows the end of the story, but in this moment, Jesus enters into the pain and the grief and the frustration of Mary and Martha and those gathered there. And as we long to see the beauty of creation restored, John reminds us, that God has entered in through Jesus into the ugliness and the pain and the loneliness that we experience. And I think this is why Peter, Peter is here. He is in this scene. He sees what's going on. He's seeing how Jesus is caring and how he loves in this moment. And that's why Peter, years later in his letter, 1 Peter, he says in chapter five, verse seven, he says, cast all your cares on him, meaning Jesus, because he cares for you. Peter was not just saying that. Peter has seen it. He has seen that, yes, you can have confidence that no matter what's going on, that God cares for you, that God loves you. So he can take all your unanswered prayers. He can take all your disappointments. He can take all your fears. And we can know with confidence that he does care, that he does willingly enter in to our pain. We're going to continue on. Then Jesus, he once more deeply, he's 
deeply moved. He came to the tomb where Lazarus was at, and it was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. Take away the stone, he said. But Lord, said Martha, by this time, there's a bad odor, for he has already been dead for four days. Picture this scene. We see Jesus at the tomb of his deceased friend, and he's surrounded by a crowd that doubts that anything of beauty could come from a gravesite. And what Martha was most concerned about in this moment was not that Jesus said a while back that Lazarus is going to rise from the dead. She doesn't care about all that. She is thinking about the smell of death that's going to come out of that tomb when it's opened. She could not possibly have imagined or anyone else gathered there what was about to happen. Then Jesus said, Did I not tell you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. Then Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may believe that you sent me. So the stone is taken away. And everyone, you can just picture everybody's bracing for the smell of death to come out of that tomb. But notice that Jesus does not pray, please bring Lazarus back to life. He doesn't say that. Jesus says, thank you. He already knew when the stone was rolled away that something beautiful had happened. When they took the stone away, we see what happens next in verse 43. Jesus called out in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out, his hands and feet wrapped with stripes of linen, with strips of linen and a cloth around his face. Jesus said to them, take off the grave clothes and let him go. The beauty they saw. John and Peter and Mary and Martha and the whole crowd gathered. Can you imagine the beauty and the awe and the wonder they saw in that moment? They saw God's glory in the midst of shame. At the scene of a gravesite, they saw the most beautiful thing break forth from the tomb. They saw the beauty of God's grace in their grief They saw a dead man rise. They saw a dead man rise from the grave. They saw a glimpse of something powerful and something truly beautiful. Now the second thing I wanna point out about what we see about beauty in this passage. So we see that God reveals his glory through beauty. From Genesis to Revelation, we encounter a God who is the creator of all things. He created the heavens and the earth and and to tell us of his glory. But God doesn't show us his glory and beauty because he needs us to admire his glory. 
He shows us his glory because it's out of the overflow of his generous love for us. It's who he is. The raising of Lazarus from the dead and, and these other restorative miraculous works, this was one of six or seven signs John talks about at this point in the story. These miraculous things that happened, these beautiful, wonderful things, they're all signs of beauty. They all point to who? They point to the God of the universe. They reveal God's glory and his beauty. The same is true when we are awed by nature, when we are awed by the sunset, when we enjoy a good meal, when we see the game-winning touchdown. All these beautiful, good things that leave us in awe they point and call our attention to the creator's presence and his beauty all around us. And again and again, the beauty we experience points us back to God. And we pause and we reflect on the beauty and the wonder of who God is. And we, we take on this posture of, of worship and adoration for God and his beauty and his glory. We are reminded of his goodness. We were reminded of what he's done for us. We're reminded, as James says, that every good and perfect gift comes from him. We grow within us a spirit of gratitude. That through every good and beautiful thing we experience, we gain an awareness of God and a love for him. That everything we do can be an act of worship. And we can see glimpses of heaven all around. Number three, two more things. God reveals his glory through us. Looking at John's gospel as a whole, okay, it is overflowing with beauty. John who has witnessed all these events, he's been there for all these events, and he has bore witness, and he writes this account so beautifully, so masterfully. It points to God and who he is, and it, it glorifies him. But John had to let God work through him, right? John had to be in a posture towards God. Say, God, use me. Let my work glorify you. May I write this account in a way that points to your glory. So we are not just created and invited to experience God's glory and worship him, but also to reflect his glory. In Genesis, we read that we are created in the image of God. The idea behind this word of image is that we are reflecting God, that we are image bearers of God. We reflect who he is to bring heaven down to earth. It's this calling that we have to reflect the power and the glory of God. The beauty of creation is a testament to just how creative God is. And like himself, God has commissioned us, he's empowered us to reflect his loving creativity in the world. This means everything we create, everything we produce, everything we build ought to reflect God's beauty and his glory. God brings heaven down to earth through our work and our creativity. 
The beauty of the gospel allows us to create things just for the pure joy of creating, to glorify the one who has called us to create. I think that's why Paul, in this letter, um, he, in his letter to the Colossians, he says this in chapter 3, verse 16 and 17. He says, let the message of Christ dwell among you richly. As you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom, through psalms and hymns and songs from the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts, and whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Whatever God has called you to do, to create or build, whatever God has called you to create or build or do, like as we follow Jesus, his glorious light can shine through if we allow him to do his work through us. There's a really great example of this. Um, there's many examples, but one I'm going to point to is um, C.S. Lewis. So C.S. Lewis, he's a very influential author and Christian theologian. He created a lot of amazing things. He had this calling to write, and he used words to paint pictures of God, of who he is and who he's not. The best example of his works is the Chronicles of Narnia the children's fiction series that centers on the character Aslan, the Christ-like lion who creates Narnia and redeems it through his sacrificial death. Now, how did he do that? Like, how did he get to this point where he creates this beautiful story that points to God through this story? You might think, like, okay, well, I'm going to lock myself in a room lock myself in my office at work and brainstorm how I can reveal God's redemptive character through what he's called me to do, what he's called me to create. But here's this quote from C.S. Lewis about his creative process. He says, some people seem to think that I began by asking myself how I could say something about Christianity to children. Then fixed on the fairy tale as an instrument, then collected information about child psychology and decided what age group I'd write for. Then drew up a list of basic Christian truths and hammered out allegories to embody them. He says, this is all pure moonshine. He says, I couldn't write that way. All my seven Narnia books began with seeing pictures in my head. The lion, the witch, and the wardrobe began with a picture of a fawn carrying an umbrella, these parcels, and a snowy wood. This picture had been in my mind since I was about 16. Then one day when I was about 40, I said to myself, let's try to make a story about it. At first, I had very little idea of how the story would go. But then suddenly... Aslan came bounding into it. Once he was there, he pulled the whole story together. Here's the thing when we think about whether it's our job for an engineer or an accountant or a parent, 
or we create things of, of any kind. Um, and, and, and having what we do be to the glory of God. That yes, it is possible that maybe you lock yourself in a room and have a brainstorming session and you know, God gives you all the answers in that moment. Sure, that's possible. But as C.S. Lewis experienced, as we begin to let the word of Christ dwell in us richly, as Paul says, God starts to reveal to us in his timing how we can use our creativity, what he's called us to, to reveal his character, to reveal his redemptive purposes in the world. And whatever we do, whatever we produce, whatever we create, whatever we feel called to do, then we ought to be like Lewis and be willing to let Christ, the true Aslan, come in every aspect of our work, every aspect of what we create, every aspect of who we are. So, creating for the glory of God. And the last point is God's glory is fully revealed in Jesus' resurrection. We're going to see the end of chapter 11. Soon after Lazarus is raised from the dead, there were witnesses everywhere that came from the town of Bethany through the gates of Jerusalem testifying to what they had just witnessed. They just came, just imagine, there was a crowd at the scene of Lazarus' resurrection. It was indisputable. The evidence was indisputable. They came flooding into Jerusalem, bearing witness to what they had saw. They saw a dead man rise from the dead. This wasn't some miracle done in the corner of the empire. It was done right on the outside of Jerusalem. And the religious leaders called a meeting and decided that this has to end. So they decided to have Jesus arrested and executed, and they decided to have Lazarus, Lazarus executed as well. Here's what they say in John eleven forty seven. He says, here is this man performing many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And then the Romans will come and take away both our temple and our nation. The Pharisees said, we have so much to lose if we don't do something about this. They had no idea all there was to gain. They totally missed that the God of the universe came to dwell alongside evil in death and darkness. God placed all the ugliness and all the darkness, all the sin and brokenness in the world on Jesus. And Jesus died on the cross and he was buried in a tomb, wrapped in grave clothes. And then we read that three days later, word gets out that the tomb was empty. And we read in John 20 that Mary and John and Peter find the empty tomb. The grave clothes were left behind. There was no smell of death. And what we see at the end of John's gospel, 
we see in the empty tomb, the grave clothes left behind symbolize this once and forever resurrection. That Jesus' resurrection represents beauty being made permanent. His rising from the dead is not simply being revived to just once again die. It is a fully revealed glory of God. The fully revealed glory of God emerging from the thing that most challenges the beauty of creation. Death. And Jesus claimed victory over all darkness that threatens the beauty of our world. Jesus is the true resurrection beauty. Jesus rising from the dead is like a glorious sunset that never ends. Jesus rising from the dead is like your favorite meal that never ends. Jesus rising from the dead is a party where the guests never stop celebrating. When we place our hope and our trust in what Jesus has done for us on the cross, our old lives, the ugliest parts of our past and our shame and our failures and all of that is buried with Jesus. And through his resurrection, we are raised to new life. Not just in the future, but today, right now, we are raised to, do, to new life. So the invitation of John's gospel is to let God make you new. Let God's resurrection beauty restore you. And when we do, we are raised to life as new creations in Christ. We are sent into the world to participate in his restoration of the world. We can cast our cares upon him when life gets hard. Because this side of heaven, we still in the, live in the not yet. But what we know is that God cares about us and about beauty and that when we are in him, we can cast our cares upon him. We get to experience his glory and worship him and see the glimpses of heaven all around us. And we get to reflect his glory through our lives through the work that he's called you to do, through the, the kids that he's called you to parent, through the work and the beauty and the art and everything he's called you to create. You get to be a reflection of his resurrection beauty, both in what you do and how he makes you new in this new creation. Amen. Amen. We're gonna have a um, time of extended worship here at the end of our service. And um, we just wanna create space for you to respond to whatever God is doing in your heart. We're gonna sing this song, Beauty, again. And so maybe your response is just to shout to the Lord and declare to him who he is. That no matter what you're going through right now, that we can all declare together as a church that he is the beautiful one. He has conquered sin and death out of his love for us. Maybe you want to go to the crosses and put a prayer request on the cross. Or maybe today you say yes.
to Jesus. You say yes to what he's done for you on the cross for the first time. And we want to celebrate that today. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much for your beauty. God, we thank you for the the beauty of your creation, God. We thank you for the resurrection beauty through Jesus. God, that we all get to be a part of. So God, we lift up to you. God, we lift up to you all our anxieties. God, we lift up to you our past, the things that we wrestle with. God, we lift up to you our answered questions. We give you all our frustration. We give you all of that here this morning. Father, may your Holy Spirit just be here. God, just come and invade. May we experience your beauty and your glory here today and be reminded of who you are and who we are. We thank you, God, for who you are. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.